Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 13th, the Friday, 2023. If it's Friday, it must be that was the week. It's been quite a week. I need to tell you what happened this week. Such a shocking week, in fact, that it even uh, seemed to shock Keith into dropping his AI-generated art and have a more vivid and dramatic cover for his newsletter. Can we stop a more brutal world, Keith asks? At least it stopped the brutality of your AI art. <laughs> it did indeed. I couldn't even begin to think how to ask Midjourney to do this week's front cover. I was lost for prompts. Yeah, I don't think we I don't think we want Midjourney coming up with images from Gaza or northern Israel. So I don't want to spend the whole time, Keith. This is a tech show rather than a politics show. But your your editorial this week focuses on politics. So very briefly, you, you write, so for me, it's a time to stand back and ask some big questions. What are the big questions that the events of the week have uh, triggered in you? I think the questions are posed by some of the people I published this week in the curated list. But it really comes down to, is the weakness of America relative to its future replacement such that the world is starting to fall apart? Um, Ray Dalio writes a piece about that. Uh, Graham Allison, who has been a long-term advisor to US foreign policy and uh, wrote a book called Destined for War, talks about it. And... Noah Smith, in his excellent newsletter called No Opinion, um, also writes about the end of Pax Americana as leading to, let's think of them as mischief makers around the world, whether it's Putin or Hamas or anyone else, taking advantage of the fact that no one's going to stop them. And that this, for these writers, is the precursor to the ultimate showdown, uh, they believe, between the US and China. And so they're predicting that these are the early skirmishes of a future global conflict. So well, big, we've heard this a million is, times before, firstly. And secondly, I don't know what, what was so peaceful about the 70s or 80s, or the Pax Americana. What is, exactly does that mean? Wars in Korea, in Vietnam, wars in the Middle East. I just think this is hysteria to me. I don't know where any evidence Firstly, there's no evidence that what's happening in Gaza is going to result in a war between China and America. And secondly, where where is this Pax Americana? Where where I doesn't I don't, I don't see any evidence of that. Well, well, I mean, obviously, there's some of what you say I agree with, but just to kind of to retrieve the logic out of what they're saying, it is the case that the Cold War was a cold war, not a hot war. And uh, despite, well, ask the Vietnamese or the Cambodians no, or the Laotians or the or the Koreans. That I don't think they would agree, or or many countries in Africa and go. No, I think you you could be accused of losing context there, Andrew. Because remember, by 1950, we're coming out of 50 years of global conflict, two world wars, 
And regional conflict and global conflict are not the same thing. They're both horrible, but they're very different. And what these guys are saying is we're moving from uh, a, a period of regional conflict, which is what Pax Americana acknowledges existed, to back to global conflict. Now, that, that is a, an actual point that you can engage with. And I agree with you. I mean, my editorial is all about preventing that and human agency and not wanting that to happen. But for example, that has consequences. It means America shouldn't be fighting China. It should be embracing it. But wait, I don't understand the connection between what's happening in Gaza and Israel and China. China's not involved in this. Well, it's an abstraction to do with opportunity when there is a contested world stage uh, for regional players to take actions that will not be policed by global policemen. That's the con that's the yeah. Con I mean, that's the Smith thing. But I, again, I don't even understand the context there. Americans sending huge amount of support for Israel. So, why is this different from the, the uh, Yom Kippur War or the Six Day War? I, I don't see what the difference is. The, the the difference is that they happened at a time of American rising global power. Uh, you know, what, uh, whether we all pretty much didn't like it, but when America did what it did in Iran, and even in Iraq post-Cold War, um, it was the dying embers of a strident rising America. What they're claiming in these pieces, and, and we can disagree. And this is the way, Smith I, piece yeah. and the pieces by um, the, the, the book by Allison, Destined for War, and uh, Ray Dalio. Yeah. And, and by the way, if you look at the subtitle of uh, Allison's book, um, talking about the, um, I can't the pronounce the word. Trap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what that refers to is the, is, is, is the inevitability of a declining power having to fight to retain its position in the world. It's not about the rising power, it's about the declining power. So Great Britain would be the archetypal example in modern history where um, you know, the rise of Germany and the U.S. happened many, many decades before World War I. Uh, it took half a century for the transition of world power to play itself out very violently. And they're claiming that we're in such an era. I, I'm not saying I agree with it. In fact, I'm saying that they write as if it's inevitable. And I disagree with that. Well, enough. Uh, we've done international politics, Keith. Uh, this is a, a tech show. Uh, we're talking with Keith Tier, the CEO of Signal Rank and the author of a wonderful um, weekly newsletter, which we deal with every week, called That Was The Week. Keith, how have the events played out on social media? Lots of you, you connect with an interesting piece uh from ryan broderick uh this is what an unmoderated internet looks like content moderation is a failed project seems to me from the small amount of time that i've spent on social media this week is it just mimics the hysteria in the world itself what, what what's is is this week going to be remembered as the week where social media formally failed I think the opposite. It's the week it succeeded. Uh, mimicking the real world is what you want it to do. The, the real world is full of, you know, weirdness. 
and um, things you strongly disagree with. And the idea that social media could be this haven uh, that it isn't like that, first of all, begs the question, well, you know, what would, who, who, would, who would be allowed to publish in it? Uh, you know, which part of the real world would be allowed to survive in social media versus some other part? So I, I think the very discussion of social media is somehow separate from the real world. That's the actual problem. Uh, it's an unrealistic point of view. The minute you open up a platform for anyone to publish to, anyone will publish to it. So, and yeah, you connect with a, a, an Al Jazeera piece that um, I actually sent you. Social media platforms swamp with fake news on the Israel-Hamas war. Um, Al Jazeera, I think, is one of the, if, if there is a relatively unbiased platform, it's Al Jazeera, but that's another issue. A lot of complaints I read on social media saying we used to trust Twitter to get us the real news and now we don't. Are you saying then that, I mean, if it does mimic the real world, what's the point of going on it? You might as well be in the real world. Well, it, it's the place that the real world meets each other. I mean, you're not going to meet everyone in the real world in your local town. But in Twitter, you literally see everything. And and I, I think mimic, mimic, mimic might be too, um, too engineered a word, Andrew. I think it reflects is probably the right balance. It reflects the real world because it doesn't alienate it. It allows it in. And Yeah, and, and the, the, the Broderick piece I'm quoting is, is it, he talks about dog shit content swirling inside of X. Um, I mean, when you go on these platforms, it, it, no one's talking to one another. They're all hysterical. They're all articulating their own particular insanity, their own hysteria. What's the? I mean, I understand it's valuable if you want to post that hysteria, but what's the value? What's the value for people actually reading it? Well, the primary value is knowledge. I mean, part of knowledge is knowing what people think. And, uh, you know, to surface knowledge in real time, this is the first time in human history that that could happen. Uh, even printing presses typically took 24 hours to recycle. And by the way, we're full of fake news as well. I mean, press releases from governments that were republished from Reuters in The Times is a common occurrence. So, you know, the, the, the fact is human beings contest reality and they now have a very big canvas to contest it on. You've talked and, about the Twitter in the past or X as the town square. It's so it's, it's not as quite a civilized town square as some people might imagine. Well, the town square isn't civilized. Why would you even want it to be? Yeah, but if everyone's just screaming at one another, and I'm then, not well, sure what, what's the value here. I don't think everyone is screaming. There are people who scream at each other, of course, but I don't think Twitter is only a place where people are screaming at each other. The, the things I read this week that were insightful, hundreds of tweets. Um, so then I wouldn't have known about some of the things, unless I was looking at Twitter. So the, the caricature of Twitter as a screaming match just isn't true. Also, as has been the week, or one of the other issues of the week, is the, e, the EU are looking now at X uh, over the dis distribution of misinformation. I'm guessing, Keith, that you're not a big fan of this EU investigation. Is it going to go anywhere? Are the, are the Americans going to 
try and mimic the EU in investigating acts? Well, it's Big Brother, isn't it? It's it's 1984 or Big Brother. It's it's hey, we're the government, and we want you to only publish this kind of stuff. Well, sorry, you know, you don't have any authority, and we and and if you do, I'm not recognizing it. Well, the EU has authority; they can shut it down. They can fine them. I mean, they well, they can't really shut it down. How are they going to do that? Well, they can fine them, and we should. Well, they could just pull out of Europe and publish from the US. I mean, honestly, the European government has almost no capability to control thought. And if it tries, it will become the bad guy. Well, if uh, I know you're not keen on the EU, you're also not keen. You managed, in spite of all the, the big events this week, you managed to find space for your favorite graduate student, Lena Khan. You had a, a connection with Lena Khan's FTT is totally outmatched versus Amazon. I'm not sure whether Lena Khan is gearing up for a fight with X, but uh, she seems to be outmatched, Keith, by big tech, is she? Yeah, I put that in mainly as a historical placeholder to affirm that the narrative we've discussed over the past two or three years is accurate, that she's out of her depth. And trying to extend antitrust law to things it has no business to be in. One of the key points of that article is that 40% of Amazon's users are now shopping on a Chinese alternative. I forget what it's called now. It starts with the letter T, TELUS or something. So um, the idea that Amazon is any kind of a monopoly is the root problem. And for Lena Khan, anything big is a monopoly. But actually, she's wrong. It isn't. Yeah, Lena Khan never seems to have met anything big that isn't in, at least according to Keith, in her mind, a monopoly. We'll have to get Lena on the show, Keith, because I know you and she would have a very civilized conversation. <laughs> it's not just Israel and Hamas that's in crisis this week. It's also streaming services are struggling. What's happening with streaming services, Keith? Well, th this is a very thoughtful piece. You sent me this one as well, actually, Andrew. Um, it, it really discusses the failing business models of some of the large networks that have gone into streaming, particularly Warner Brothers, but others as well. And when you read it, what, what for me that comes out of it is that the streaming model requires high quality, regular content, not a back catalog. Disney has a great back catalog. Um, so does Paramount Plus. So does Peacock. But people, I think, in the main, are looking for new content they haven't seen before. And that's dominated by Netflix, Apple TV Plus, um, a little bit Amazon Prime. Um, and, and that's about it. So in the streaming, uh, the streaming business model uh, seems to challenge the old networks, because they're not spending enough money on great new content regularly enough. What's happening is people are subscribing for a week, binge watching the small amount of new content, and then unsubscribing. So the idea that you get an annual subscription from a person isn't happening uh, uh, for, the, for the ones that are only relying on back catalog. That's my take. Um, others have got different explanations as to why it's the case, but I think it's really all to do with quality and volume of content. 
wouldn't be a week on that was the week without AI, AI of the week, interesting links. The one that really struck out to me was that OpenAI's revenue, this is a, 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 on the information, but its revenue crossed 1.3 billion annualized rate. Is this a big deal, Keith? Um, yes and no. Uh, the, the other news this week was that it's costing uh, something like 700 I think I'm getting my facts right here. I'll fact check myself later, but I think it's $700 million a day to run OpenAI. They're losing money on every user, um, including the paying users. So $1.3 billion annual revenue doesn't really pay the bills. Um, so they're still challenged to get to much larger numbers. There are rumors that they are going to try to raise upwards of $100 billion to fund it. Um, I don't know if that's real. Is that um, is that a smart move? Do you think? I mean, what would the company then be valued at if they raised a hundred billion? Well, it'd be valued uh, as a function of the appetite of the providers of the money for no, ownership. No, no, I understand, but I mean, would it get valued at three, four hundred billion? Well, you've got to believe if if Apple is worth nearly three trillion. And OpenAI really represents the future of the human race's knowledge network. It's going to be worth trillions. A hundred billion is a tenth of a trillion. So it isn't totally unrealistic that it could raise that kind of money. No, I, no I understand, but I'm curious. Google's valued at 1.7 trillion. Apple, you say, almost 3 trillion. I don't know, Microsoft, I think it is about two, above two trillion. What, what kind of valuation do you think they can get away with? I mean, it's well, all speculative, as you yeah. suggested. It all depends on what the appetite of the investors. But could could OpenAI theoretically be valued at a trillion dollars? And that wouldn't that be a record as a startup? What startup has ever, yeah. pre-IPO pre startup has ever been valued at a trillion dollars? Yeah, I mean, it is breaking records every time it does anything in terms of growth and value no, no one's gotten to 1.3 billion of annualized revenue as fast as this either i think i think a trillion dollars valuation would be actually quite small uh, would you if, invest at a trillion i think if you invested at a trillion you'd probably make five times your money in five years so you mean in other words it would be worth five trillion in five years yeah, it's going to be the most valuable company on the planet by a large degree because there's no other game in town for the future of human knowledge management. And and and, and wow, okay, that is a. I'm going to come back to you on that one. So you're 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 dismissing Microsoft and Google. Well, Microsoft relies on OpenAI, and Google is a weak competitor to OpenAI with a legacy business it can't close down. So I think OpenAI holds all the cards, and and wow! And so so it is a good investment then at a hundred, a, a trillion dollar investment would be a a, a, a smart move. Well, it, put it this way: you'd be betting on OpenAI being the equivalent of the next internet. It's not just one company; it's the whole infrastructure of knowledge management. Wow! And and and, and remember that goes out now into um, agents and assistants, digital assistants. But, but it also, I, no, I take your point, but it also assumes that 
OpenAI is the clear winner. You said, I'm quoting you, you said the most valuable company on the planet. I mean, it does have competitors and it hasn't really, as you suggested, it hasn't really proven itself. It's not even profitable. It, 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 well, it shouldn't be profitable, firstly. Well, that would be a mistake because it's still investing in, in its platform. So as long as people will give it money to invest, it, it, shouldn't, it should want to invest it, not to keep it. Um, and clearly the revenue traction shows that it's just scratching the surface. If it can get to 1.3 billion in 12 months, what's to say it can't get to 10 billion in another 10 months? Um, and is that 1.3 billion? Is that mostly people paying $20? No, no. Actually, that's a very small part of it. It's mainly API use by um, enterprise users and other other companies. Mm. Astonishing. We need new language, Keith. You, you used to always, in the old days, uh, talk about unicorns. Now we need a, a, a word to describe trillion dollar pre-IPO startups, don't we? Well, there aren't going to be many of them. I mean, if, if, if somebody can figure out nuclear fusion, they probably would become one. Um, but there aren't going to be many companies. I, th I think the internet can now create unicorns very easily. Uh, anything successful, you know, it occurred to me this week that even in a single city, a big city, food delivery alone can create a unicorn that only serves a single city because the revenues associated with being good at that are very large and the, the margins are, are not so large but you know that so that... unicorns are boring now they're run-of-the-mill we see them all over the place what's interesting are post unicorns these trillion dollar private companies that we don't even have it they're so that that that's we're so early on this we don't even have a word for it we well, need, that, you need that, to tell Genet to come up with a, a word to describe these people yeah it's a centicorn is a is basically uh a hundred billion. Billion. and and then meanwhile you also have an interesting piece from um from noema which is an interesting platform a sort of a magazine startup about artificial general intelligence already being here. What do they say that's different? I mean, this is an endless debate. Gary Marcus and many other AI experts have strong feelings on this front. Yeah, they're, they're making the point that ChatGPT is so good at so many things, uh, um, as long as you know how to use it, that it already is artificial general intelligence. So you, the, the, the debate about whether AGI is possible is over. It is, and they've already built it. Um, you know, I think I think there's a semantic uh, issue that Gary Marcus would focus in on, which is that there's a difference between being able to answer questions on anything and be somewhat accurate versus being able to think and reason. And so he defines AGI as thinking and reasoning which clearly ChatGPT doesn't do. It's a statistical machine, basically, a very large-scale statistical machine. Uh, words and numbers for ChatGPT, an association between numbers, the distance between words is, is the distance between numbers. So it's a number machine, and therefore he would say it can't be AGI because it doesn't reason. What, what um, Neoma is saying is it is AGI because it can do everything. Um, 
even though it isn't reasoning. And I think they're both kind of right. I, I, I wouldn't pick between those two. They're just different, uh, different end games, uh, looking at the starting point in different ways. I think everyone has to acknowledge that chat GPT is stupendous compared to, I mean, imagine the time before chat GPT and somebody would have described it. We wouldn't have believed it, would we? Well, I'm, again, I'm not particularly, I don't use it, so I don't know. Uh, it hasn't changed my life, but we will see. Certainly, it's a remarkable company. A few weeks ago, Keith, we talked about a certain Sam Bankman-Fried. You said, well, this guy is proven. He, we need to prove him guilty before we, before we decide his fate, determine his fate. Now he's had his time, or certainly some of his accusers have their time in court. You connect with some pieces, uh, one from uh, the information on SBF didn't understand risk reward, which is a euphemism for describing that he's basically a big time crook. And you also connect with a piece in The Verge asking why and how it's still getting worse for Sam Bankman-Fried. Have you made, is, is, he, is he guilty, Keith, from, from this week's uh, court case? Does it reveal the fact yeah. that this guy's going to end up spending the rest of his life in jail like Bernie Madoff? Well, yeah, my, my desire for an actual prosecution has been fulfilled. Uh, the prosecution is still in control of the case right now. And by all accounts, the cross-examination from his defense has been poor. And the accusation... Well, maybe there's no defense. That's why it's been poor. That could easily be the case. That's one possible reason. The, 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 um, the overriding impression from this stage of the trial is not only is he guilty that he was consciously uh, manipulating customer money in, in, and making his colleagues help him do that. Now, the one thing you should always say is let's let the defense uh, form their defense. Let's hear from him. But I think um, he's, there's a very steep hill for him to climb to get to a point where you doubt his guilt now. And this is what we needed. We, we, need, we need a trial, not uh, media speculation, and we've gotten it. And yes, um, I, I never thought he was innocent. I just thought he should be given the right to prove his innocence. And he still hasn't, by the way. That still has to happen. And let's see. Any thoughts on Caroline Ellison and her role in all this? Uh, the fact that she was yeah. his girlfriend, his closest associate at the company, made us CEO or president, paid her large amounts of money, and now she's ratting on him. Well, there's a tragic human story in there, isn't there? But I also think that the conflict of interest is um, important to keep in the back of one's mind. I mean, the government has, has um, taken all of his relationships and promised them... Um, let's say, at least mitigated treatment in their own trials if they give evidence against him. And uh, in her testimony, she's using words like, uh, we did criminal things, which may be true, but she's no lawyer or judge. So she probably isn't aware of whether they're criminal or not. Um, and, and I think, you know, for that reason, um, I don't doubt anything she's saying. I do doubt her motivations and her formulations as being, uh, let's call it free thinking. 
Um, and we'll, you know, we'll see. I, I, I suspect he's going to go to prison for a very long time. Uh, we'll know more over the next week or two. Um, and let's keep talking about it. And is there, you're in Palo Alto, in the heart of Palo Alto, all your friends of Palo Alto, Stanford people. Um, is there a, a, and I've asked you this before and you've always dodged the question, is there a, a, a broader moral parable here about his justification in terms of effective altruism and all the rest of his garbage? Well, he's he's a pretty unique individual. When it he's not comes. that unique. I mean, effective altruism is something that his mother and his father peddled and gets peddled in all these universities. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Most of Silicon Valley doesn't talk about altruism. Period, and effective altruism, not at all. Um, however, his generation uh, prides itself on, you know, demonstrating. Um, humanity let's say through thought and ideas um, some people call it woke and um, he blends the desire for money with that narrative which now starts to look you know highly suspicious and um, I, I don't think you'll find many people in Silicon Valley that have both of those elements going on. So you think there's a generational quality to SBF that he reflects somehow the the desire of, of young people to be both good and wealthy, that's a Silicon Valley uh, indulgence. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, most of us in the Valley who are involved in startup life don't like people who are obsessed by money. And it's quite rare for people who are focused on money to actually make money because the ecosystem rejects them. They're like a, a poisoned organism. The ecosystem really is looking for people who want to change the world. And they, they believe they'll make money if they do that. But money isn't the goal. Changing the world is the goal. And you'll see that. You can be cynical about it, but I think it's common to pretty much every startup entrepreneur. Even Travis Kalanick, who's an extreme individualistic kind of a guy, was really set on changing the world before he thought about making money. And for a long time, it didn't look as if he would make money. So um, I think Bankman Free's desire to make money uh, is a little bit like um, Elizabeth Holmes means that the he's rejected by the organism. If you look at his investors, typical seed and A-Ron investors didn't invest in FTX. It, it was uh, unusual investors, um, later stage investors, if you will. So... Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't tarnish Silicon Valley with with Elizabeth Holmes or Bankman Free, to be honest. I think the Valley is different to both of them. Someone needs to write a book, Keith, the tale of a tale of two Sams comparison and contrast, Sam Bankman Fried and Sam Altman. Yeah, maybe we can maybe you, you can and I can uh, co author that one. It's time for startup of the week. And uh, an interesting startup this week. Uh Adobe, we don't think of them so much in the startup space, but they're a very innovative country, uh, not country, company, changing the world. What are Adobe up to? How did they get Startup of the Week this week? They, they announced the next version of um, their AI tools. Um, and the way they're doing it is they, they have a thing called Firefly, which is their AI core, but they're building it into... Photoshop, Adobe Premiere, and now Adobe Illustrator. 
So you, you, you know, previously to use Illustrator, which is a vector graphics program. So it really is for highly skilled visual designers with fonts and objects and shapes. Uh, they've made it so that you can ask Illustrator to do, build something for you. And apparently does a very good job of building a, ve a, a layered vector graphic of whatever is you describe to it. And then you can tweak it and edit it. So it's further example of reducing human labor time by applying AI to creative tasks in this case. And Adobe is at the very beginning of this, which is why it qualifies for startup of the week. Right, I'm waiting for Adobe. I mean, I use some of their photo and video stuff. I'm waiting to, for, for an integration of, of AI. I'm sure it will come. Finally, the X of the week. Let's go back to where we started. Ray Dalio, uh, David Sachs quoting him here. Uh, Dalio writes on, on X, the odds of transitioning from the contained conflicts to a more uncontained hot world war that includes the major powers has risen from 35% to about 50% over the last two years. God knows how he comes up with those numbers. <laughs> Tell me more about this, Keith. Well, I, I just put it in to highlight and illustrate why I wrote the editorial I wrote, because it's a kind of an unusual editorial for me. Um, and, and I wrote it because that's where the conversation is going. And I think the minute that smart people think that world war is inevitable is the beginning of a bad phase in human history. And in my editorial, I wanted to say, we have the ability to say no to that and do something about it, which starts at home with advising our leadership not to engage in a war with China, but to embrace the econo economics of doing business with China. Um, and, and, and in doing so, acknowledge that America may become number two instead of number one, and that that's not a big problem. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, the X of the week is evidence that we need to have that conversation, because if we don't, David Sachs is of this world and Ray Dalio's of this world and Graham Allison's of this world and Noah Smith's of this world will dominate the conversation. And the end game there is the brutality we saw uh, uh, in Israel last week writ large on the world scale. Well, it's not just this week. It's as we speak. Yeah. I'm lucky I don't do the newsletter, Keith, because if I had, I would have made Hamas startup of the week. But I would have gotten into trouble for that one, wouldn't I? Well, I think you get away with a lot because you're actually Jewish and therefore can uh, take um, a position on things that um, those of us who are not Jewish would find it hard to do. <laughs>